According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Luke 11 this morning is our passage. Luke 11, verses 37 through 54. Luke 11, verses 37 through 54. This is episode 12 in the last Judean and Prean ministry of Jesus, titled Judgment Against Lawyers and Pharisees. Um, it's actually backwards. It should be Pharisees and Lawyers, but I didn't make up the title, so we'll go with it. Um, woe to you Pharisees, we're told in verse 42. Uh, woe again in verse 43. Woe again in verse 44. And then one of the lawyers says, well, you, you're insulting us too. So he says, okay, woe to you lawyers as well. In verse 46, and he just keeps on going. And it's a tough message, and yet it's uh, very needed. And I hope we'll be able to embrace the doctrine that's contained in these, uh, in these passages here in this study. Let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure that believers, we are believers that are filled with the Holy Spirit, prepared to handle spiritual truth. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege and blessing it is for us to assemble together. Father, we ask for your hand of blessing upon our study today once again as we study to show ourselves approved. We thank you for this day. We thank you for all the ministry we anticipate on this day, including uh, child evangelism and the multiple prayer meetings and, and everything that takes place. Might it be for the glory of Jesus Christ. Might today be the day of his return. We thank you in his most precious and holy name. Amen. All right. We left off, uh, we went through three points of study and ran out of time with the subpoints from point three. So I'll just run through those here very quickly. Uh, as we read through, starting in verse 37, when he had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him. He went in and reclined at the table. This was our first point of study, that a Pharisee lunch invitation uh, was the venue for more ministry opportunity. He invited Jesus to lunch. He was surprised by many things. First thing he was surprised by was that he did not go through the ritual purification procedure, which is verse 38. When the Pharisee saw it, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal, did not go through the ceremonial ritual for purification. So that was the first surprise. His first surprise was that Jesus did not ceremonially purify himself before eating. You would think you know, as it was required of the priests and the high priests, that they'd be ritually pure to go into the holy place, that they'd be ritually pure with an animal sacrifice to go into the holy of holies, you would think that they would have to be ritually pure to go into his house and have lunch, see. But this is the insanity of what they had done when they took the purification requirements of Mosaic law for their priesthood uh, application and brought it across into every realm of daily life. Uh, in fact, I mean, you take something that was supposed to be of significance, ritual is supposed to teach a reality, it's supposed to teach a significance, and when you so broaden it to make it applicable all, all day, every day, for any, it loses its special uh, procedure, it loses its special impact, and it no longer has uh, the significance that it's supposed to have in the narrow realm where you make that application. Second surprise came when Jesus launched into the diatribe against Phariseeism. 
So the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you you are full of robbery and wickedness. And he just unloads both barrels, you know, the robbery barrel, the wickedness barrel, and, and there it was. Internally they were a wreck. And see, this is what, of course, God, who looks upon the heart, knows the reality. And uh, Jesus Christ here speaking, not from omniscience, but under prophetic utterance, uh, making very clear the internal reality of these godless Pharisees. Those who have the externals of being perfect Christians, being perfect uh, Jews, perfect uh, religious people. And inwardly they were, they were horrible. Under point two, we looked at the requirements of Mosaic law for ceremonial purity. The requirements of Mosaic law for ceremonial purity did not include lunch at a Pharisee's house. All right, if you want to go back and look at your notes under Galilean Ministry, episode 40, you'll notice there was purity that was required. Um, generally speaking, it was, it was limited to the priesthood, but the population at large had to go through purification rites and rituals for only a handful of circumstances. Leprosy was one. There was a handful of cases where the general public was required to go through a purification Ritual. By and large, the purification rituals were for the priesthood in preparation for their uh, Levitical service in, uh, in their stewardship. Thirdly, the primary diatribe was not the external cleanliness, but the internal wickedness. That's what he addressed. Uh, he wasn't being critical of their external of their external cleanliness that they emphasized, but the internal wickedness that they never realized. And that's what he talks about here in verses 39 through 41. That's what had to be addressed. And this is no different in other applications when he was talking about how on Judgment Day there are going to be countless numbers. They're going to be all convinced that there's been some kind of a mistake. When they come before him and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do this? Did we not do that? We did all these other things in your name. And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. You realize that their, their very approach, when they first approach the throne and start shouting, Lord, Lord, that is their desperate plea for uh, a second chance. That's their desperate plea because they're already standing at the great white throne. They're already condemned. Not a one of them is written in the Lamb's book of life. And their very first appeal of Lord, Lord is in itself a, a, a begging uh, for a second chance or change your mind or there must be some mistake. Uh, you know, I don't belong here. There's, there's been a terrible mix up. <laughs> right. Uh, somehow or, or other, I, I was not remanded to the judgment seat of Christ's docket. I'm still on the great white throne docket. There's, that, that's a problem. You see, I'm I'm very religious. I've, I've done so much for you. Well, no, externally in an outward religion. That might be the case, but internally, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, they uh, there's no mistakes. God never makes mistakes as far as what judgment people are supposed to be standing before. Now, the details on this is where we spend the bulk of our time. Um, the description here about internally filled with robbery and wickedness is so parallel to the fall of Satan in Ezekiel 28, it was worth looking at, and uh, even worth looking at repeatedly. Uh, we could do so again this morning. We won't. I think we covered it uh, thoroughly enough on Sunday night in our ministry workshop that uh, we've, we've looked at it a couple of times now in, the, in various classes. But Satan in his fall was internally filled with violence and he sinned. And it's a description there. And of course, these guys are uh, a brood of vipers themselves. They're a chip off the old block, we say. They are patterned after the example of their father. And we're told in John 8, you're of your father the devil. You desire to do the things of your father. 
And that's what we see here. So internally filled with violence and they sinned. The description that we have of it there. Secondly, we looked, started to look at the vocabulary. Robbery on the one hand, wickedness on the other hand. And uh, they're fairly unique. They're terms that we're not as familiar with uh, in terms of harpage, uh, the noun, but the verb harpazo we're very familiar with because we, uh, we love teaching about the rapture. <laughs> we teach about the rapture. We think about the rapture. We pray for the rapture. We consider that today could be the day of the rapture. It's a very familiar concept to us in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. We're very familiar with harpazo and the idea of snatching and grabbing and the clutching that takes place at the rapture. We are caught up to be with the Lord in the air. Well, harpage is a noun form of that same verb, and it's, uh, it's an act of robbery, plunder, seizure, and uh, so forth. And that's what happens here. A related, uh, or a, a use of the term that maybe brings into a vivid focus for us is the one in Hebrews 10.34, where the believers there rejoiced. It says that they, they rejoiced uh, over the seizure of their property, knowing that, uh, you know, whatever property Rome wants to seize is, is one thing. They can't snatch what's been laid up in heaven. They can seize some earthly property and they can, they can take some treasure and they can run you out of your home, but this world's not our home anyway. So when you have an eternal perspective, such things uh, really pale in their significance. So uh, robbery and wickedness, and this was their internal attitude. When you think about it, this is the nature of religion. It's taking in its orientation. Religion will always take. And uh, the better uh, the practitioners of religion are, the uh, better they are at taking the things of others, taking control of other people's lives, taking control of the way they think, taking control of the way they live. And I think about the churches that are that dominate in the realm of religion and how good are they at taking, enriching themselves, plundering widows' houses for their own enrichment, and so forth. It was uh, the other day I was reading a debate between some uh, different folks. It was a actually it was a it was a website that's uh, dedicated to uh, answering atheism and different things. And so the debaters, some of them are better than others and some are just pathetic. But um, there was a description of charity. And why is it that Christians are so much more charitable than atheists? You know, and um, the and it's undeniable that, that Christians across denominational lines, Christians by and large are very giving and are very uh, charitable and, and so forth. And atheists have the smallest percentage of charitable giving of any group in the in the country. It's it's amazing. And uh, well, one of the comebacks then uh, the atheist was trying to say, well, that's just because uh, you know your Roman Church has all the money anyway, so you can afford to be gracious, you can afford to be generous, kind of a thing, as if that was the motivation. Anyway, they they missed the point and they were roundly addressed because of that. Well. There was a purpose for this illustration. Where was I going with that? Oh, (laughs) the nature, the taking nature of religion, the taking nature, it's taking rather than giving. And that's what has to be transformed. That's the mindset that has to be transformed. The unregenerate mind is at its core a selfish mind. It's wrapped up in self. But once you are renewed in the spirit of your mind, once you are a new creature in Christ, you start to exhibit the character traits of your new paternity, your new father. And that love is a giving love. God so loved the world that he gave. First love has first deeds. Love is giving in its 
motivation. And we're going to see that transition here when we learn what the antidote is. And we'll get to that here in a moment. Where we ran out of time, the last thing we looked at, there's a variety of English translations for these terms where he says, inwardly you are full of robbery and wickedness in verse 39 of Luke 11. And, and whether you take it as robbery and wickedness, greed and evil, greed and wickedness, uh, ravening and wickedness, I kind of like that, ravening, or ravening, ravening, I guess, and wickedness. Some of that Elizabethan English is now out of style. It's unfortunate. I think we need to bring more of that back into uh, common use. However you render it, the principle is clear that uh, what the Lord had previously spoken about is uh, indeed what's taking place here. And uh, the previous messages in Matthew 12 and Matthew 15 um, all once again find themselves restated here in the application of, uh, of, the, of this particular Pharisee who had invited him to lunch. All right, so now what's the answer? Did we look at both those passages last week, Matthew 12, Matthew 15? Okay, then we'll move on this morning then to point four. Jesus prescribes the antidote to Phariseeism. Here's the antidote. You want to stop being a Pharisee in your thinking? And it's important because you, you say, well, what are you talking about Pharisees in our thinking? There's no Pharisees around anymore. Oh, let me tell you, there are Pharisees like you wouldn't believe in all kinds of churches, including and especially doctrinal Bible teaching churches can promote a Pharisee mental attitude that, that well, it's 1 Corinthians 8. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And I know countless doctrinal believers that have notebooks full of content, but a heart pretty similar to what we're looking at here. And you say, where's the application? Where is the living application of what you're learning? So, here's the antidote. Verse 41, he says, but... Well, let's look at verse 40. You foolish ones. You foolish ones. Kind of like Job rebuking Mrs. Job. Right? You foolish ones. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? What is he concerned about? The external cleanliness or the internal heart attitude? He says in verse 41, but in contrast, on the other hand, by way of remedy, give that which is within as charity... And then all things are clean for you. Here's the antidote. Here's the answer to your, uh, to your robbery and wickedness of heart. Don't be taking in your orientation. Be giving in your orientation. So Jesus prescribes the antidote to Phariseeism. Namely, internalized almsgiving. Internalized almsgiving. And we'll see... The uh, aspect on this here in two subpoints: internalized almsgiving. Start from the heart. You'll note it ha- does not have anything to do with the external charity, with the dollar value. Later on, we're going to see a, a story about a rich man and a widow, and the widow gave her her mite. And who actually gave more, the rich guy or this poor widow? The poor widow did. Because it started with her internalized attitude that was giving and loving and gracious in its application. The rich man that gave out of his surplus, out of his excess, gave out of his who cares money, right? It didn't cost him anything. He had already spent what he wanted, already pleased himself, and he had more money than he knew what to do with anyway, so he might as well, uh, you know, throw, throw some money to the temple kind of a thing, as, you, you know, you've already done everything you want to do with it anyway. It's your throwaway money. 
But she gave out of her substance. She gave from a heart of love. Again, verse 41, give that which is within as charity, that all things are clean for you. And this, uh, I was going to double check this. I meant to have it up on the screen and get it ready. Let me load that up. Because the primary imperative here, the command is the command did me to give. But what's emphasized is that which is within. That it is that which is within that is your treasure then to be able to express. So we'll look at that here in a moment. I want to double check my verb and make sure we're not, I'm not leading you astray with something off the top of my head. Verse 41, give that which is within as charity. Okay, I'm correct. Our imperative here is the data. Is it too bright in here? Can't see the screen. You all want to just come back after dark? You're going to do that anyway. We've got an evening class tonight. Okay. Anyway, the primary imperative is data, which is give. And that's what they're commanded to do. But what are they to give? Ta enanta, the internal things. That's what they're to give. The transformed internal heart attitude is what you have to give. When we talk about what our sacrifices are, what do we function in in our priesthood, what is it that believers can offer, we're going to really start to highlight the blessings of what God has provided for us as we grow in grace and knowledge. Stop and consider this. You say, well, I don't have anything to give. I'm not wealthy. We're not talking about wealth. We're not talking about uh, what's in your pocket. We're talking about what's in your heart. You give the internal things, what is in your heart. And so as God transforms you, your heart becomes more gracious. You express that grace. Your heart becomes more thankful. You express that. Your heart becomes more loving. You express that. So as you've received, freely you receive, freely you give. And it comes back to a heart that's being transformed as an act of mercy, as an almsgiving, as a uh, blessing in this lost and dying world. Okay, so I was correct on that. Subpoints here. Subpoint A, the heart attitude of snatching converts to a heart attitude of giving. Oh, not converts, converts, I'm sorry. The heart attitude of snatching converts to, or is transformed to, I shouldn't change it to transform, so that my verb doesn't look like a noun. But you have, you're renewed in the spirit of your mind. And you go from a taking heart attitude to a giving heart attitude. Or a snatching heart attitude. That's what they were, full of robbery and wickedness. The heart attitude of snatching converts to a heart attitude of giving when the heart is transformed. This is all part of growing up. In fact, even in in the earthly experience, we've got a parallel that we can observe. And and just, you know, look at your typical two-year-old. Look at your typical three-year-old. Children are wonderful illustrations. Not your children, of course. You've all got perfect children. But other children. (laughs) Okay, yes, I'm even talking about your children. At the risk of making you all mad today. Your children are sinners that need salvation, right? And that transformed heart, part of what needs to be disciplined, part of what needs to be molded in the part of the parental upbringing is this selfishness. 
in this hard attitude of snatching where everything's me first, me, 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 me. What do I get? What do I get? Transform that to a hard attitude of giving. And the more giving, the more Christ-like. The more taking, the more Satan-like. And it just comes right down to that. You know, when you, when you run through the five I wills of Satan, how many of those were giving? Zero. That's right. And how many of those were self-exaltation, self-promotion, taking, snatching? He wanted a, a throne that he wasn't entitled to, a seat he wasn't entitled to, a position he wasn't entitled to. The five I wills were all snatching in five realms that he was not entitled to. They were all designed for Jesus Christ as the Father's blessing to his Son. So the heart needs to be transformed. Uh, they, could, they could do all the rituals in the world. And in some cases, uh, not the, the, the extra pious, the hyper-religious, not only purify themselves before each meal, they were going through this ritual between each course of every meal. See, And boy, they had the, you know, the cleanest, scrubbiest hands in the world and everything else, but inwardly they were full of robbery and wickedness. So here's the procedure. You want to be clean? Because the, the result is... Uh, then you will be clean, or then all things are clean for you. But what has to happen, though, is that internal heart attitude has to change. Secondly, internal fruit from a good tree. Internal fruit from a good tree is the best charity. That's the word we have here in this verse. The best charity that we can give to the needy. What is it we have to offer this lost and dying world? We have this wonderful privilege to be able to bring forth good fruit from a good tree or good treasure from a good storehouse. Different metaphors that are used. The point still being is that you have the production of a transformed heart. You have the divine good production from a transformed heart. And the world can't match that. The world's got no answer for that. It's the best charity that we can give to the needy. This man, I imagine, was all impressed with his goodness, everything he'd done for Jehovah, everything he had done in his religion. The truth was, he hadn't done a thing. He needs to bring forth good fruit. He needs to have a transformed heart. Like uh, Nicodemus in John 3, you've got to be born again. And Nicodemus was a teacher of Israel, a leader of the Jews. He wasn't even saved. Jesus told him, you've got to be born again. And so this is the antidote to Phariseeism. And I think, uh, obviously, when you look at the, the Pharisee mental attitude, are they even saved to begin with? In most cases, they're not. But it may be uh, that they are saved in the sense that uh, being born again and regenerate, but so caught up in their religious uh, program that they lose track of the real issues. They're not growing in the grace and knowledge. They're babes in Christ uh, as far as uh, doctrinal Pharisees are concerned. Well, this reminds me, I need to go back and reread. I've got a, it was a book that was given to me the very first year I was ever ordained. And, uh, and I've read it multiple times in the last 14 years since then. And I'm due to read it again. I haven't read it for a while now. But it's called The Pharisee's Guide to Total Holiness. All right. And it's just tongue in cheek, but a wonderful title, right? And yet, what does it represent? It reminds us that uh, if we're going to use the Pharisee method of holiness, we're in a world of hurt. We need to walk by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and understand what true holiness even is. All right, moving on. Point five then. Jesus pronounced three woes upon the Pharisees who will not take his prescription. You know, even when he prescribes this, even when he tells them what he has to do, he knows this one particular guy is not going to do it. And he's addressing the Pharisees at large. 
I think when he was speaking to Nicodemus where he says you must be born again, um, it's the wonderful testimony of Scripture that he did accept Christ. He got saved. He comes up later on with uh, Joseph of Arimathea, and they speak on his behalf at his trial. They take the body and, and bury him and, and different aspects there. I think I don't have any doubt that Nicodemus got saved as a consequence of John chapter 3. This guy, on the other hand, I think uh, it's pretty safe to say he doesn't get saved. That's why his name is not preserved for us. We don't know his name. Uh, probably Phil. Phil the Pharisee or something like that. No, I can't pick on him any name Phil, but just a PH name that came to my mind. All right, Ethel's got Phil's in her family, so I've got to be careful. <laughs> What's another PH name there besides there's uh, Pharaoh? All right. Three woes. Let's look at these woes. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb. They pay tithe of that. They tithe that. Now think about, I mean, just, now we don't live under a system of tithing, but we do have grace giving, and, and you think about what you give and as unto the Lord and so forth, but, um, you know, what, what do you, do you break down every last little nickel, every last little penny, every last little... Uh, how fastidious are you in your giving? And that might not be a fair illustration because giving is so different from tithing anyway. But stop to consider. I mean, imagine, okay, um, you have a job, you have a paycheck, you make a certain amount of money, and so every month you've got this money. And whatever your attitude is in grace giving, say maybe it's a, a first fruits approach or whatever it is, and there's your paycheck, and so you thank God for it, and then you set aside whatever, and you take it, and you put it in the grace box, whatever you do. All right? Let's just say that's what you do as an illustration. And then, um, you know, uh, beyond above and beyond all that, uh, you're, you're shopping in the mall or you're out doing whatever and you find a $10 bill on the street and you go, oh, wow, do you actually stop to say, wait a minute, you've already given for the month, right? And, and you find a $10 bill, I've got to give a dollar of that. I've got I to make sure I can't just put this 10 bucks in my pocket. A dollar of that's got to go to the church, see? And every last little scrap, and oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. See, if you're that peculiar and particular about the, the fastidious details, maybe you're missing the big point or the big picture. See, and, uh, and then you go to HEB and you come home with uh, your groceries and then you got to stop and say, no, wait a minute. <laughs> now I've got some, uh, well, what are the examples here? Mint and rue and every kind of garden herb. So these other things you bring into your house now, Right? You just brought home a pound of sugar from HEB. Now you've got to take 10% of that out. And that has to be tithe. Can you imagine? To be so fastidious, they major in the minors and neglect the major elements of worship. And this is what the pronunciation of woe is, is dealing with. They major in the minors and neglect the major elements of worship. Notice, you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. These are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. They major in the minors and neglect the major elements of worship. 
And I think um, there's there are facets of mechanical legalism, maybe not to the Pharisee extent and so forth, but um, you know there's there are folks that take great pride in uh, their attendance at whatever at Bible class at prayer meeting or whatever. This hey every time the doors are open I'm there kind of an approach. That's great. We love it if you're here every time the days are open. That's wonderful. But if that's a, a legalistic adherence to, a, to a, an attendance expectation and you're neglecting the weightier things of, well, why are you there in the first place? Are you being transformed? Are you growing? Are you worshiping? And so forth. Um, then you've, you're majoring in the minors and you're missing the, uh, the overall point. And so that's what we're looking at here with the first of the three woes. What's the second woe? They love human approbation. And they neglect love the Lord their God. They've got the wrong love. They're supposed to love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their mind, with all their soul, with all their strength. But what is it they, that they love? They love the chief seats in the synagogues. And that's the wrong love. That's like the crowd we saw in 1 Timothy 6, that the love of money. Wrong love. All right. You know, you ask with these false teachers, would they still pastor the church they pastor if, they, if the church wasn't paying them? So do they love the church or do they love, you know, do they love the Lord or do they love the money they're making? Say, do they have the, uh, the phila argurion we were looking at in 1 Timothy chapter 6? Where's their love? Have they left their first love, as in the case of the church at Ephesus? And so here you love the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. It becomes motivational. It becomes, the, uh, it becomes causal, the cause of what they do. See, <laughs> and, uh, you know, in certain realms of uh, religion and in certain uh, denominations, uh, it can be very lucrative. It can be very prestigious. Uh, used to be more so than now, maybe. I don't know, <laughs> in some respects. Um, uh, Spurgeon, in fact, in all the people that came to Spurgeon to train at his pastor's college there in London, he, he sent quite a few of them away, turned them down. He didn't accept every student that came to be trained or came to attend his pastor's school. Uh, he come to find out that some of them had the wrong motivation. They were there for the wrong reasons. And he'd tell them, you know, brother, you've got, uh, uh, you've got the wrong reasons for being here. And he wouldn't train them, wouldn't accept them. So if, uh, if a young man thinks that, uh, thinks that the ministry is a, is a, lucrative process or um, and it doesn't have to be financial lucrative either it could be uh just in terms of respect just in terms of admiration just in terms of whatever you know and what have you uh, and it, it was especially dangerous if the the you know when i was growing up my pastor ken jensen was very charismatic and very outgoing and very uh, well liked and very handsome and very i mean all of that and you, it would be easy to say wow look at that there's an attractiveness there you know, if you get to become a pastor, then everybody likes you kind of a thing. Well, if that's your lust pattern and what you crave, then uh, you better be aware of that, that there's a snare awaiting you should you pursue the ministry. So be aware of that. Chief seats in the synagogues. You know, you like the designated parking spaces at the hospitals. <laughs> yeah, clergy parking, right? And sometimes they waive your, uh, your parking fee in the garage. Wow, that's worth it. <laughs> okay. But don't underestimate. I mean, this is it's powerful. It can be powerful. It can be seductive. 
it can be uh, of a of an influence in not only pastors' minds but uh, church members' minds and so forth that uh, it can really derail a person's faith. You know, think about churches maybe you've known in the past that uh, when the pastor's feet of clay came popping up and their imperfections and their sin pattern or whatever else happened and all of a sudden, oh, scandal, our pastor has a sin nature. Like that's a newsflash, right? But when... When it becomes a news flash, in other words, when the pastor's sin nature ends up on the American statesman front page or whatever, and then all of a sudden it's an embarrassment. But what really happens, beyond the fact that it's an embarrassment and discredits the name of Christ, it actually pops your bubble and exposes your own idolatry. That's what can't be tolerated. You know, I mean, it's one thing that, okay, he failed and he did whatever, but um, beyond that, your pride got hurt because you idolized the guy. And now all of a sudden you're you're crushed because your your little religion of idolatry is exposed as the fraud that it is. And now, is what Colonel Theme taught all those years ago. Now you got to destroy your own idol. And and pastors go from being uh, the number one uh, object of worship to the number one object of of hatred and revulsion and disgust and and destruction kind of a thing. All right, what's the third woe? You're like concealed tombs. You're like concealed tombs. They're the embodiment of Proverbs 14:12 and 16:25. Their ways are the ways of death. There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. Woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs. They don't even know it. The people who walk over them are unaware of it. They are participating in the religious system of these religious leaders and they don't realize what they're in for or where these uh, teachings are taking them. And it's so sad. These, uh, these Pharisees and the, and the people that they're leading astray, the people that are following after their teaching. We can look over at Proverbs 14. And this, it, this is perhaps one of the toughest things that we deal with, that we teach, because the externals may be so good. Proverbs fourteen twelve, There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And so when you think about take a way which seems right and think about uh, external religion. Think about man-made religion. Think about um, Pharisee standards for holiness. Think about things that, that believers get sidetracked in that in themselves there's nothing wrong with them. Uh, you know, if you want to volunteer in a, in a soup kitchen, if you want to spend time with uh, uh, housing ministries, if you want to pound nails with Habitat for Humanity, I mean, if you want to do all these things, do so under the filling of the Holy Spirit for the glory of Jesus Christ for the right reasons. But do not substitute the external activity for the internal reality because it's not the same. But see, that's what happens when the external gets substituted for the internal and when the internal gets neglected. You end up tithing mint and dill and cumin and all this other stuff and you're neglecting the weightier elements there that are to be observed. But its end is the way of death. And what's interesting is what happens when you have all this external righteousness, but because there's no internal reality, what other outcome can you expect besides death? That's, that's the end result. And how many uh, righteous 
humanly righteous. How many good people are in hell today? And they're, they're going to hell every single day because they think their goodness is what's going to count for something. Again, back to that Lord, Lord. They, they're, they're banking on all these good things they're doing as if it counts. It doesn't count. In the, um, one of the websites we looked at this morning in the churches we were praying for, the pastor has a doctrinal study on how to evangelize morally good people. It's hard to do. It is hard to proclaim a, a gospel to people that think they're good enough to get there anyway. They don't need your gospel. They're working for it. And they're, and they're doing a good job at it. And trying to give the gospel to moral people is sometimes a very difficult task. And so here they are. Uh, Luke 16, uh, Luke Proverbs 16.25. Almost identical terminology. Different context. And so many of these Proverbs 16, I remember, is one that we highlighted in Kiev and spent the time to go through and demonstrate the poetry and demonstrate the, the uh, distiches and the different aspects here. The, um, the other day we were looking at verse 24 as well. Pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. The physical health benefits that can come about by having a stabilized soul that's oriented to the Word of God. It's a wonderful promise there in verse 24. Followed by verse 25, there is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Almost identical language. So, when it comes to these Pharisees, and their way seems right, I mean, it seems like if you follow their pattern, then hey, you know, you're going to be a good person. You're going to, God's going to be happy with you. Things are going to work out great. And yet, what's the end of it? They are, at the end of the day, they're still a brood of vipers. At the end of the day, we're told that they... Um, that they uh, they're keeping people from coming to the truth, and that's uh, when the rebuke turns to the lawyers. Uh, we'll see exactly that that's what they're involved with. All right, the lawyers now. Point six. We look at the lawyers. The lawyers were also struck by Jesus' hubris. The Greek word that's used here is the word that underlies that where we actually get the English word hubris. And uh, when they say, Lord, you're insulting us also, um, they're using that verb, the hubrizo verb. So Jesus pronounced three more woes upon them. Three more woes upon them. Now, these lawyers, we've already studied them, in fact, very recently. In uh, last Judean and Prean ministry number eight, we saw the aspect on the lawyers. It was a, a term, uh, Luke was fond of it, actually, and he used it rather interchangeably for scribes. And uh, for Luke, scribes and lawyers could be swapped out as interchangeable terms. But scribes and Pharisees, lawyers and Pharisees, and so forth, these guys were the experts in the law. They were the ones that were specifically... Um, skilled in order to make copies of the Hebrew manuscripts, to make copies of their, of their uh, lectionaries and their readers and their uh, uh, commentaries, the Targums and so forth. So woe to you, scribes or lawyers as well, for you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. What a contrast. What's the first woe? They free themselves from religious burdens, but they're imposing them on others. They free themselves from religious burdens they impose on others. 
It's just bold-faced hypocrisy. Look, if it's good for the goose, it's good for the gander, right? I mean, if, if uh, it's good for the flock, shouldn't it be good for the shepherd? If it's good for the people, shouldn't it be good for the teacher? Stands to reason. That's why Bible teachers are supposed to set the example. But see, this is the thing. Pride, pride won't even go there. Pride can't comprehend that. Pride is so insane and so twisting that somehow perverts the, the evaluation of self that you're above the rules. That they don't apply to you. So you, you have a life that's not consistent with what you're expecting other people to live. And I find that interesting. Because it was true in Jesus' day. It was true uh, throughout church history. And it's true in our time as well. Countless illustrations in various different ways. Now notice, you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear. You weigh men down. Why do they do that? (laughs) Why do you put such weight, such burdens on your people? That's not consistent with Christ's ministry. He said, take my yoke upon you for my burden is light. Um, we shouldn't be weighing people down. The only reason why you do this is so that you can control them. Think about it. You put them under these burdens. You put them under these obligations. You put them under these controls. And then what do they need? They need you. (laughs) That's right. They need you and your religious system to tell them how well they're doing. It's uh, that's an insidious slavery. It boggles the mind, and yet you see it again and again and again and again. And it just it, it it's almost uh, well. If I didn't understand angelic conflict, I'd throw my hands up and say, well, "Why does this happen? <laughs> How does this work? Why is it that grace ministries are scraping for for people and resources and assets and positive volition and all that, and you just end up with a remnant every time you turn around? You would think that a grace ministry with righteousness and truth would be thriving." But it's the legalism that thrives. It's the religion that thrives. It's the heavy burdens that thrive. And, and uh, with, with lines out the door. Again, if I didn't understand angelic conflict, I'd, I'd be a little bit bamboozled and I'd start to wonder. And then I'd start to say, well, hey, maybe, uh, maybe I'm the one that's got it wrong. <laughs> maybe I need to go to this other routine and we can really rake in the bucks. Say, joking, okay? Not not serious about any of that. Goodness gracious, that scares me to death, because I got to stand before Jesus Christ and give an account for what this ministry does. All right. So anyway, this is, uh, but it's uh, it's a danger sign. It's a red flag. It's an absolute red flag. So for Larosa and Radley and Dan and Bob and anyone else, Skyler and anyone else that's thinking you might be a pastor someday. Better stop to realize that whatever uh, burden you lay on others is uh, better be the yoke of Jesus Christ, and you better be the first one on that yoke, because you you have to live what you're preaching. These these lawyers, of course, weren't uh, weren't up for that. Secondly, they claim a heritage, and they don't understand that their true heritage is the exact opposite. So point B, they claim one heritage, but in reality, they manifest a different heritage. And that's the second woe in verses 47 and 48. <laughs> and, uh, and it's interesting. They claim one heritage, but in reality they manifest a different heritage. 
There's different ways we could illustrate this also in terms of we ought to be thankful for our heritage. We ought to be thankful for those that went before us and and uh, allowed for us to be where we are today and so forth. But um, we've got to make sure that we're also accurate ourselves in terms of what we're doing. Verse 47 here says, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets. That's the heritage they claim. And they celebrate. I mean, goodness, look at these monuments they're building, the money they're spending, the, the effort that's going into these great tombs that they're building up. Places that, uh, well, let's be honest, places where they can rake in some bucks. Uh, you know, hey, come visit the tomb of David. Come visit the tomb of, of uh, Isaiah. Come visit the tomb of Jeremiah. Come visit the tomb of so-and-so, right? And it becomes a... A pilgrimage comes a place where people come and take a look at it. People will come and and uh, and visit and see what you've got to to, to see there. <laughs> and the Roman Church went wild with it. And you travel the Holy Land today, and now you got this church and that church and this other church. And the, uh, Constantine's mother just went to town, and she put a Roman church on every spot uh, in the Holy Land where uh, where you know they could they could make some money and say this is the spot where. Uh, Jesus was baptized. This was the spot where Jesus wept. This is the spot where Jesus uh, was tempted in the garden. This is the spot. And they got it all charted out. See? And, of course, if you ever read or listen to Arnold Fruchtenbaum or take one of his tours, he'll point out that uh, none of those spots is, uh, is provable. And uh, most of them are definitely unprovable as being in the wrong spot. And he, uh, he's, he's pretty funny when he illustrates and tells the story. His, his favorite place in the Holy Land is the Sea of Galilee. He says, because for two reasons. First of all, you know exactly where it is and what it is. It's undeniable. That's where it is. That's what it is. And the, the Roman church hadn't figured out how to put a church on top of it yet, right? So he says he likes it for those two reasons. But here they are building the tombs of the prophets, celebrating this great heritage. And yet, who killed them? Who killed those prophets? What was the circumstance of their death? See, you know, and it's, it's, I, I find it really interesting and, and different things in, in the, um, what a country decides to do when they build a monument, when they decide to honor something or honor somebody. And I don't, I don't, uh, I'm, I'm glad they're doing it. I'm glad that, uh, for example, the, the Vietnam War Memorial, I'm glad that such a thing was built. But it amazes me because at the time, our country had such a horrible hatred and, and vilification of the military. It's just, uh, it, it's almost a situation like this. It's almost like, I'm glad they've got it built now. I'm glad it exists, but it almost seems wrong, as it were. Anyway, maybe that's not an exact parallel, but here's these guys building tombs for the prophets, and yet... It was your fathers who killed them. You are witnesses and approve the deeds of your fathers because it was they who killed them. And so you build their tombs. Jesus says, you want to know if you look at it in, uh, in this particular way, uh, your celebration or your uh, building of these tombs is in agreement with your fathers that these guys needed to be killed. That they needed to be dead. You're glad they're dead. In, in one way of looking at it, at least as Jesus was teaching it here and rebuking them. All right, the third rebuke. Oh, let's read the rest of this here. For this reason also, the wisdom of God said, the wisdom of God said, and this is what we're going to break down when we talk about the um, 
the wisdom of God in, in terms of the Word of God that is being referenced here because this is not a known Old Testament Scripture that Jesus is citing here. The wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles and some of them they will kill and some of them they will persecute so that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world. Notice from the blood of Abel. Did you know Abel was a prophet? When you read Genesis 3, uh, 4, you read about Cain killing Abel and so forth. You didn't know that Abel was a prophet, did you? And yet we're told here, the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world. And it says, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the house of God. We have to spend some time on that. But this is a message and, um, and a particular rebuke that's coming into focus here that Jesus is applying to this generation. He says at the end of verse 51, Yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. That's an important phrase. This generation. In particular, in this text, in Matthew 24 and other places, when Jesus references this generation, we want to know who's he talking about. Who is this generation? Because there's confusion among some folks uh, in terms of this generation when he's speaking prophetically versus when he's speaking uh, directly in a rebuke like he's doing here. So we'll have to focus on that. And hopefully we'll spend some time. It's, it's worth it, I think, even though it's, we're not going to get to the, all of it discourse for a while. Down the road it's going to pay some dividends for us because you'll encounter some folks that think that Jesus was talking about the rapture in Matthew 24 and about one will be taken, one will be left. And, and you end up with some preterists that think that uh, the second advent had to come with, to this generation because he said this generation. And they get all wrapped up over those terms. So hopefully we'll spend some time on it and do real well with it. The third comes at, uh, in the next verse, verse 52. The third woe on the lawyers. You have taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves did not enter, and you hindered those who were entering. They claim a special knowledge, but in reality they hinder true knowledge. They claim a special knowledge, but in reality they hinder true knowledge. called here the key of knowledge. And the key is what controls access. Key is what controls entrance. Like Jesus Christ who holds the keys of, of uh, heaven and death and, and so forth. If you control the keys, you control entrance. And here they are. You have taken away the key of knowledge. Taken it away. Well, where do they take it? What are they doing with it? They're holding it in their custody and they're not relinquishing it to anybody. And by holding it away, what are they doing? They're preventing anyone from entering. You yourselves do not enter. You hinder those who are entering. I think specifically this comes back to what was taught so long ago in terms of that. Uh, what is the key to knowledge? What is the key to understanding the word of God? What is the key in any Bible study? It comes back to that humility, the grace orientation, humility orientation. If you're going to study the word of God, what do you got to start with? And these guys are so full of pride, they removed that key. They removed, uh, it's, it's, uh, anyway, it's an interesting study. Um, then you look at this another way. You know what? The key of knowledge begins with, begins with salvation. If you're not saved and you're not regenerate, you can't understand the living and abiding word of God. The, the natural man cannot attain to the things of the Spirit of God, for to them they are foolishness. So by blocking the gospel, by confusing the gospel, with, uh, by taking away a gospel of grace, replacing it with a gospel of works, what have you just done? 
you've just hindered anyone from getting saved. And beyond hindering anyone from getting saved, since they're, they're still dwelling in darkness, they're not going to learn anything. The key of knowledge, you, you yourselves did not enter, and you hindered those who were, in, who were entering. Back to what we talked about, the, the hardest people in the world to evangelize are the religious, moral people that think they're already there. And the very religion they're pursuing is the biggest obstacle to them getting saved. Because they think they're good enough. They think they're in the right church. They think they've got it. They're, on, they're in part of the right system. And it's a big obstacle to their understanding salvation by grace through faith. So many different things we could deal with this. Uh, again, this is, I think, a, a particular element. We better be, we better be cautious as doctrinal churches. Uh, we better be cautious that we teach... Line upon line, precept upon precept, we teach clearly, we teach accurately. But the moment we start to think that we've got something special or that we have a deeper insight or that we are entitled to levels of doctrine that, ooh, you know, those fundamental uh, churches aren't, don't have access to or these other churches don't have access to, we better stop and reevaluate. We don't have access to special knowledge. I think we have something special here because we've got a body of believers that's committed to teaching. That's special, all right. But the, the, the level of knowledge, the doctrine, the realms of Scripture, it's not special, uh, designated just for us. We're not entitled to levels of doctrine that other believers aren't entitled to. All Scripture is God, bring them profitable. Every verse of Scripture is available to every believer to study. And the minute we think that, oh, we've got this monopoly on the truth, we've got this, uh, this unique access to the deep things of God, we're, we're just setting ourselves up for that same pride that these guys had. And if, thanks to our uh, methodology and if, thanks to our commitment, if we do happen to learn things that other brothers and sisters aren't learning, don't let that go to your head either. Remember, to whom much is given shall much be required. And if you happen to have a greater knowledge, then make sure you have a greater love that goes along with it to keep you from being puffed up. Because I can't begin to illustrate well enough how that uh, 1 Corinthians 8, 1 passage is just so powerful. Love puffs up, but knowledge, I mean, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if you have a greater knowledge than your neighbor, brother, co-worker, friend, whoever, and you better make sure you've got a greater love as well to go with that and be the older brother to come alongside, not in condemnation, but in, in uh, ministry. All right, so there's their woes. What we're going to deal with, and I've got four minutes left, that's just not fair to take you into point seven. But this generation, this generation is the generation of Jesus Christ's earthly ministry. It is the literal audience to whom he's speaking. That's this generation. And the important thing for us to identify is because the term is identical to the term that's used over in Matthew 24. But in that instance, when he talks about this generation, he's not talking about the people physically in front of him at that time. He's talking prophetically. He's talking in the future in the context of that passage makes that clear, whereas the context of this passage makes it clear as well. All right, so in, in a short period of time here, I want you to be solid on it, and we'll, we'll spend more time on it next week. 
But don't be trapped by the phrase this generation and say, well, it has to be the, the, the human beings that are right in front of him that, you know, his words are hitting their ears and that's who he's talking to. That's them. OK, yes, in this passage, very much so. Why? Because everything in this passage is addressing these very, the Pharisee that, that he was eating with, the lawyers that were offended, the very people he's dealing with right then, right there. Not the case in Matthew 24. In Matthew 24, he's, he's viewing the future. They asked him about the future. They asked him about the end of the age. They asked him about the, the, the tribulation. They asked him about the abomination and all these things. So we're going to see that when he takes them into the future prophetically, and start describing those things. And then when he mentions this generation, okay, that's right. It's still in that realm of the future where he had his message, where he had his focus, where he had his ministry. See, you can't just rip back to the, the 33 AD and say, oh, that, that was that generation there. So, so important. And this is, uh, it's, it's, it doesn't, it's not, complicated but you just have to take the time to to look through and see the context of it or else you end up like the you know the bible answer man or the hank hanagraph the the confusion over you end up with a preterist view of uh of revelation to say oh well you know everything in the bible has to be over because jesus christ said this generation so uh you know all the revelation uh six through 19 all the bowls and vials and trumpets and wrath and antichrist that's all over and done with and they said, that's all over and done with because Jesus said all these things will come upon this generation. And, and that one little phrase throws so many into such turmoil, it's, it's amazing. So we'll, uh, we'll focus on that next week. But like I said, we don't, it's not fair to try to squeeze all that in in the quick two minutes and, and not walk through some of the process on that. So we'll reserve that. And then uh, we'll wrap up point seven, point eight, and bring, uh, bring this episode to a close. All right. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your faith. And Father, um, I pray that as we've seen three woes on the Pharisees and three woes on the on the scribes, the lawyers. Father, my prayer is that none of these six woes would be circumstances or conditions that any one of us here would embrace or adopt in our own mental attitude. Father, uh, keep us in every respect from uh, exchanging the truth of God for a lie or for substituting the internal reality for some kind of external uh, religious legalism system of worship. Father, the last thing in the world we want to do is to try to uh, abandon the truth for uh, this this phony external man-made religion. Father, we want no part of that. And Father, I pray uh, as well as we continue to study uh, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little, as we grow, as we're transformed. Father, help us be a blessing to others that are still in this Pharisee mindset, in this scribe mindset. They're, they might be born again, they might be regenerate, but they, they're trapped in systems of externals that, uh, that do not release, do not provide freedom. It's the truth that will set them free. And I pray, Father, that we might be testimonies to that in this lost and dying world and in this religious world. And we might be able to make disciples of those that are regenerate but not disciples and might be able to encourage them to, to refocus their priesthood and to uh, study to show themselves approved. I thank you for this, uh, this chapter and all the ways that it can be brought to our immediate application. And I thank you in Christ's name. Amen.